Welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Damien. And I'm Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just society. We want Interdependent Study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. And Aaron is up this week. What are you bringing to the table today? I am bringing for our 20th episode... Um, yes, that's exciting. Uh, exciting times. Um, I'm bringing We Do This Till We Free Us by Mariam Kaba uh, to the table. So this book as a whole is made up of essays and interviews, um, old and new, uh, that provide insight into Mariam Kaba's view of abolition politics and kind of a way forward, right? Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're actually going to approach this a little bit differently than we do um, most things that we bring to the table. Um, and we're going to talk about the first four parts of this book this week, uh, and then we'll discuss five, six, and seven next week. Um, so we chose that kind of division point in the book um, because, well, it's it's kind of halfway through. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that makes sense. Um, but also the first four parts seem to set up some core concepts and kind of like theory uh, around abolition politics. And the last three seem to shift into practice a little bit more. Yep. Um, at least that's what we could discern from the um, the table of contents, right? <laughs> so um, oh, you're just showing all our cards. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's fine. Transparency is a, is a core value of mine. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So we wanted to be able to give this enough time to talk about it in depth. Yes. Um, because there there's so much here, right? Yeah. Um, like, you know, as I think we say almost every week, or at least we did in the beginning, like we're really only scratching the surface yeah. for the first four parts here, um, let alone, you know, not really being able to have time to get to, to parts four or five, six and seven. Right. Yep. Um, so anyway, the first four parts that we are going to talk about today are called number one. So you think so you're thinking about becoming an abolitionist. Number two, there are no perfect victims. Number three, the state can't give us transformative justice. And number four, making demands, reforms for and against abolition. Yeah. Um, sorry, I had a little typo there and I got confused and hung up on my words. So these four parts, I think, really establish some uh, concepts about abolition. Uh, and I think they focus on kind of criticisms of the current system and some ways that we can create new systems to replace the harm uh, that is baked into the current systems. Um, so I think we'll kind of go part by part today. Yep. Um, so what stuck out to you about the first part of the book um, that we read and um, what do you want to talk about from that first part? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was a good intro. And, 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 you know, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad we finally got around to reading this book uh, mm -hmm. because, you know, I know it's been on both of our lists for a while now. We've talked about it here on the show before. So, uh, as you said, happy 20th episode to us. What a gift. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Aaron, to be honest, there's, a lot in this book and there was so much to, to process in it. So I I'm with you. I'm, I'm glad that we've split this up and are going to spend some extended time talking about it because I think it deserves it. Um, and it, and it warrants the extra time and attention for, for so many reasons. And, you know, there was just so much in the, the first four parts of this book that I was 
struck by as I was, you know, sort of simultaneously reflecting on and thinking about the work of, of social justice and collective liberation and and the world that I hope we get to see one day. Right. Um, and so I definitely think we should start with abolition uh, because that's how the book actually starts sort of in that first part. Yeah. Um, and really, obviously, is what the book is all about. And I think there's so much to say about it. I'm sure we'll get to some of it. So maybe scratch the surface, as you say. Um, but I think it would be good for us to lay a foundation for what abolition means and and specifically, uh, you know, what this book says about it. Right. So the the first chapter in the first part of the book talks about prison industrial complex organization, I'm sorry, abolition, um, as being three things. One, a political vision. Two, a structural analysis of oppression. And three, a practical organizing strategy. And I think that that's a really good overarching way to think about what abolition is, right? Yeah. You know, so in thinking about um, talking about abolition as being a vision, you know, they defined abolition as pushing us towards a restructured society where we have everything we need. So that being food, shelter, education, health, clean water. Um, you know, Flint still doesn't have clean water, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of the things that are truly foundational to our personal and community safety, which, you know, I think is clearly an important goal if we're thinking about our collective freedom. Um, the second part of that talked about oppression, right? And sort of the structural analysis of oppression. And, and in that, they talked about how abolition is this positive force that allows us to build a society where it's possible to address harm without relying on structural forms of oppression um, or the violent systems that increase it. Um, and so, like in this context, you know, that's thinking about things like policing and mm-hmm. p- prisons and our our criminal punishment system. They uh, this book often refers to it as our criminal punishment system, and I yep. I think I'm going to adopt that. I like that a lot. Um, and and certainly, last but not least, was the piece about abolition being a practical organizing strategy, and right. and that's all about getting us to a place where we're able to ask ourselves meaningful and transformative questions. You know, questions like, what are prisons and policing actually doing for us? Um, and and what is our criminal justice system actually doing for us? Uh, and is it actually working to keep us safe and reduce crime? You know, and the spoiler alert is that it's not, nope. right? And, <laughs> and policing and prisons aren't working for us either, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's 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 so much in that definition, and, and but I appreciate that sort of being this overarching, you know, guide to what um, uh, prison industrial comp- complex abolition is. Um, but I want to stop there because I definitely want to hear your thoughts on this and and talk right. to you about it, you know. But I but I did want to sort of lay that out because I think you know again the book did a really good job in in defining what abolition is right from the jump. Yeah, agreed. I think that it's. Um I think people look for simple definitions of stuff mm-hmm. or they boil things down to like the, the most simple idea um, that's, that's available. Um, and so, um, and, and I think that this concept is more complex than that. It requires more uh, creativity and critical thinking than just like, all right, well tell me what abolition is about in 30 seconds. Like give yeah. me the elevator pitch. It's like, well, yeah. I, n- no, yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, that this, this requires more than that. This isn't, um, you know, sound bites yeah. and, 
um, 30 second news clips or whatever, um, you know, well, and given what it's trying to accomplish, right. That makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I, I appreciate that about this book because I think the whole, you know, first part of this book, the first four parts that we're reading establish that and don't try to simplify it. Right. It's complex. It's, it's all of these things, um, and more that aren't even in here. Right. Um, and so I think the opening part really laid out, as you just did, like all this great stuff about defining abolition, um, not as a movement for tearing things down, but as a movement for building new things that bring us a more just world. Right. Um, and yeah, so I think that that's really crucial um, that we think about it in that way rather than like the the just sort of ending of systems tomorrow right. that <laughs> we then f- don't have any kind of... Um, idea of what public safety means yep after this happens right like abolition is a process to get us to this place where we don't need that uh prison industrial complex anymore because we've developed all these other systems that actually hold people accountable and people hold themselves accountable and there's public safety in different ways than you know what we can currently consider public Absolutely. safety. Absolutely. Right. And that's, uh, I think, a big holdup for some folks when talking about this, right? Yeah. And we've heard yeah, that yeah. argument over and over again that, you know, if you just get rid of the police, like what happens? No, right. it's a more thoughtful and it's a process. And it is a process, um, yeah. you know, to get there. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And I think so, one of the things connected to this concept um, that I think Maryam Kaba speaks to throughout the book she kind of lays out in this quotation toward the end of the first chapter um, that she says, changing everything might sound daunting, but it also means that there are many places to start and infinite opportunities to collaborate and endless imaginative interventions and experiments to create. Let's begin our abolitionist journey, not with the question, what do we have now and how can we make it better? Instead, let's ask, what can we imagine for ourselves and the world? If we do that, then boundless possibilities of a more just world await us. Mm. And that's just so good. Yeah. Um, And we have to be imaginative here. And I think that that's something that's difficult for us, right? Like it's hard to imagine something that doesn't currently exist. Um, But I think this is in the book later on. Like, you know, the system that we currently have was imagined by somebody Yep. At some point. Right. Absolutely. Like, you know, groups of people at some point. So we can imagine something new that isn't this. <laughs> um, and so I think that this is a consistent concept that throws flows throughout different abolitionist texts that we've read, too. Right. Yep. Like yep. Adrian Marie Brown encourages the same kind of radical imagination of a world that doesn't consistently recreate oppression. And so that was something that we read um, in her book and in her work, too. And so um, I think this is something that's an important key piece of sort of an ab- de- developing an abolitionist politic. Yeah. And what it is. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, that was so, so good. And, and the idea of imagination, I'm so glad you brought that up and, and shared this quote. I think imagination is powerful in, in terms of, of getting us there and working right. towards abolition uh, for sure. So uh, yeah, I, I love that. You know, one of the, Many things I was struck by um, in this book was the recurring conversations about the criminal punishment system and its interactions with black people in this country. Um, And and also the work the book 
did to acknowledge certain aspects of what I would call the the black experience in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, and I say certain aspects because I want to acknowledge that not everything about black people and our experiences in this country uh, is tied to the criminal justice system, right? I think about, you know, pl- uh, presidential debates often, right? When black people are brought up, it's in the context of the criminal justice system. And I always hate that um, yeah. and, because that is not the totality of our lived experience in this country. Um, so I, I just want to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a chapter in the first section of the book called The System Isn't Broken. Yep. And that chapter spent a good amount of time talking about policing in this country and its connection to to blackness and, and black people. And I think one of the most powerful sentences in that chapter was this. A persistent and seemingly endemic feature of our society is the conflation of blackness and criminality. And that sentence legit stopped me in my tracks because it absolutely speaks truth to power, right? Yeah. Yeah, like the I think that chapter and others in this book you know, talked at length about this and, and gave plenty of examples. You know, when we think about the unvarnished history uh, of our of, of our country, when we think about the history of policing in this country and the idea uh, around, and we've talked about this on the show before, the evolution of policing from things like slave patrols and what happened in the Jim Crow era and, and black codes. Yeah. You know, when we look at like the documented biases and accounts of brutality that police departments have and who all of that has targeted in this country. Um, You know, and I should say that there are many chapters in this book that do a really good job to acknowledge, um, and this is credit, um, uh, that acknowledge the experiences of black women and black girls and black LGBTQ plus folks, you know, in, in the context of all of this, which is so important um, right. as we're thinking about this. Um, you know, and certainly when we think about the the documented violations of black people's civil liberties, you know, from all of the arms of our criminal punishment system um, and our larger society that span literally centuries in this country. Um, you know, when we think about all of that, it's not difficult to see how that statement about, you know, blackness and criminality being conflated in our society, how that's true. Yeah, um, absolutely. You're right. And so I don't know. I, I I think it was, I also think it was in this chapter, the, the system isn't broken chapter where they call for the end of policing being an absolute necessity. So that's sort of how it starts, how it ends. They sort of bring it all together and end that way. But I think throughout the entire book, there's this larger call um, for abolition. And, you know, when we're thinking about and looking at our entire um, criminal punishment system. Yeah, I think the um, one of the things that I hear in what what you're saying and and how you're um, talking about the book, I think is that she does a really great job of holding this focus on tiny details. Yes, and how those tiny mm. details are sort of uh, emblematic of larger system issues, right? And so they're they're these little examples that represent a greater whole. Yep. Um, and I think that she does a really great job throughout these different pieces that honestly are like published in different timelines and published yep. in different places and formats. And, yeah, yeah, for and all kinds of things, right? And they all have this kind of common thread throughout. Yep. Um and they're they're connected, which obviously is probably why the book was published. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh gosh. And that's so good. And you talk about some 
it being tiny examples, part of a larger, right. but even some of those tiny examples are literally the loss of life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you, you yeah. when you put all of that in context, I think that's what makes this book so right. amazing. Right. Right. And yeah. I think, I think it's important for me to say too, I don't mean tiny examples oh. and like l- not important, but in the like yeah. sort of down to the individual to like yes. the larger system. Right. And Absolutely. so we have these, what seem like individual interpersonal acts of violence, um, between us, you know, a single officer, Mm -hmm. um, and a person or what have you, depending on the scenario. Um, and then how that's also repeated throughout the system. So it's, it's the, these specific examples, right. That are significant and they matter and they're part of this larger whole. That's such a great point. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so shifting kind of a little bit, um, I think, um, you know, this kind of theme really talks about how the whole system has to be replaced. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so you talk about that call for the end of policing and a larger call for abolition, you know, throughout the entire book um, of the criminal punishment system. You know, I think, for example, um, talking specifically about police at the end of well, no, in in um, a chapter called Yes, We Mean Literally Abolish the Police, which was originally published, I think, in June of 2020 yes. in the New York Times. Um, she says there's not a single era in United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people. Mm. Um, and then she lays out some of the history of commissions that investigated policing over the years, starting in 1894 with the Lexow Committee in New York City to the Wickersham Commission, which investigated prohibition enforcement in 1931, to the Kerner Commission in 1967, to President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Mm. And so all these offered kind of milk toast reforms that, or they reinscribed the legitimacy of policing through suggestions for more training, or um, I think it was uh, the Wickersham Commission, if I recall correctly, (laughs) that called for more professionalism right of police force and the Kerner commission i think called for more community support of police right and so they saw these sort of like emblematic issues not as issues of the system itself but as issues of individuals that we could train out of them. right um and so this you know this these calls for reforms have been happening for years but also that violence has been happening for years which then create the calls for reforms right, right? Exactly. um and so yeah. So rather than considering how can we reimagine what public safety looks like, the commissions make these suggestions for how we can reform the thing that's creating. Yeah. And it becomes that report that sits on the shelf, right? Or the report. Right. And probably in the case of Obama's, <laughs> it's a, it's a, you know, an, a website. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a digital shelf. Yeah. Um, and so later in that chapter, she, she says, we should redirect the billions that now go to police departments toward providing health care, housing, education, and good jobs. And if we did this, there would be less need for the police in the first place, which is mm. where I think is a radical thing to think about in yeah. our current context and the current conversations is like, well, what if we took this money, right? And that's what defund the police is actually about. Yeah. is like, well, let how much money are we spending on policing? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this, I think, before in several episodes. Yeah. But how much money are we spending on policing? And then how much can we spend on these other areas that maybe would actually provide some security and a safety net for people and prevent them and, like, not 
and create some actual public safety for people. Yes. In a different way than we currently think what public safety is like. Right? Absolutely. And yeah. create some new conditions for folks. Yes. Right? Yeah. And we've talked about that. <laughs> that too. take away, that like sort of ease the conditions in which crime happens. Yes. Right? If I'm hungry or if I'm not hungry, I'm not probably not thinking about needing to steal food from my family. Right. How about like, it. Absolutely. So. Yeah. That's huge. Right. Yeah. Um, and particularly this idea of uh, that there would be less less need for the police. Um, yeah. And and that was one of the most powerful takeaways um, from that chapter for me as well. And, and I think all of that speaks to that conflation idea I just talked about, but mm-hmm. also gets us back to our earlier conversation about the importance of imagination in this work for, yeah. for abolition too, right? If we, all we're doing is recycling the same old commissions, right? And they're doing the same work from 1894 to, to through Obama, you know, it's time to imagine something new, right? right? And I loved your point earlier about how it was a group of people who imagine what we have in the first place. And so right. we can do this now. Yep. Um, absolutely. That's that's all really good stuff. Um, all right. Well, we should shift to part mm-hmm. two of yep. the book. Where should we start? Where do you want to start? Um, so part two is called There Are No Perfect Victims. Um, and I think it does work to try to honor the full humanity of people who have been victims of the criminal punishment system or of interpersonal violence in some way. Yep. Um, And one of the main points is that we can't or shouldn't use people uh, as symbols of how the system is broken um, because they're these perfect victims. Yeah. Right. Um, Because if we do that, then we're establishing like the system of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. When in reality, all of the victims that Mariam Kaba is writing about are black women um, who were defending themselves from violence. in their own circumstances. And so she specifically talks about two examples and a a few more, but the two prominent ones that I um, recall, and she spends entire chapters about are Marissa Alexander and Centoya Brown, uh, both of whom have been held up as these examples of how the system is broken and how they shouldn't be in prison, which is correct. They shouldn't be in prison um, for what they've done in defending themselves from violence. Um, and that violence was either from an estranged partner um, or a violent client, um, right? But if we start labeling them as perfect, then we're creating this hierarchy of, yes. you know, again, what's acceptable and what's not. And we're sort of reinscribing this criminal punishment system of acceptable versus disposable all over again. Yes. And so th- that's one of the major takeaways for me from this chapter is that like, we have to be cautious in how we approach this advocacy because we might recreate this the same kind of narrative that's already um, sort of socialized into us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say it's socialized into us. It's embedded in the system, right? Because yeah. the system itself is flawed and right. the system itself is racist and right. all of the, you know, and everything um, that it is. And so, yeah, that's, I, I agree. You know, part two of this book, I think is such an important, you know, body, um, because there is no such thing as the perfect victim, right? As you just mentioned. And, um, and it's a critical part, I think of this conversation around abolition, right? If we as a society can truly recognize that, I think that's going to help, you know, push us to this work. Um, and yeah, I was certainly moved by the chapters and the stories of Marissa and, and Centoya. And, you know, I think there are 
really clear examples. Um, I think they are really clear examples of just how our systems are just so broken and don't work, um, especially for, as you mentioned, black women. Um, yeah, I think right? like the, it's mentioned that like the Marissa Alexander, that case happened in Florida, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so stand your ground, which is a common thing used in, in self-defense, yep. um, wasn't like she wasn't able to use that as a legal defense. Right. And so why is that? Right. Um, because she, you know, in her specific case, she fired a warning shot into the ceiling from a gun when her husband, her ex estranged husband was mm -hmm. charging at her or something like, right. Like there, he had shown up and wasn't supposed to be there and she fired a warning shot into the ceiling and that was it. Yeah. And so now she's supposed to serve prison forever because she yeah. couldn't, she wasn't standing her ground. I, it's just, yeah. Yeah. So like the question what? you asked there, why is that? Right. Is it, is the yeah. key. Right. And you know, I, I, as I was reading this part of the book, I was thinking about how I'm sure there are some folks who, who could argue or who can struggle with, especially in the case of Centoya Brown, for example, right. right. That, you know, the fact that this is all complicated because it's connected to sex work in her case. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that speaks directly to this idea that there are no perfect victims, right. Sex work or not, a number of the chapters in this section, uh, you know, talked about how folks engaged in in that kind of work still have agency, right? Still have self determination, you know, and 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 should be able to have the right to define their own experiences, right? And 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 right. demand justice and be protected by our systems in the same way that you know everyone is supposed to be. Um, but in in both of these cases, right, we see over and over again how our criminal uh, punishment system disproportionately just does not protect black girls, black women, uh, black femmes, black trans folks. Um, yeah. And specifically doesn't allow them to protect themselves either. Right. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Yeah. And you know, one of the other things that was pointed out in this section of the book and one of the other chapters, you know, there were some stats that were provided. And so, you know, if you're a numbers person, right, like this will get you right. One, one of the stats was that back in 2017, there were 219,000 women in U.S. prisons and jails, uh, and the vast majority of them were poor and of color. And another stat was from 2014, which uh, came from the Sentencing Project, uh, that said uh, black non-Hispanic females had an imprisonment rate over twice that of their white non-Hispanic female uh, counterparts. Right. And so, you know, you've got the stats there and, um, you know, I think related to all of this and I, and I actually don't think that this was in part two, so I'm, I'm jumping around a bit. Uh, but you know, it's also hard to argue with the other elements of our society and our system. And when you connect it to, as one of the later chapters did, you know, the 1994 crime bill under Bill right. Clinton. Right. And what that did, uh, in terms of continuing to criminalize black people in this country. And I know you have thoughts about that. And I know we've talked about it before. Right. Um, so I, yeah, there was just so much in part two, that is just a critical, um, part of the conversation around abolition. Yeah, and I think part two really captures kind of what I was saying earlier about it being like this complex idea. You can't like, right? Like we're trying to do our best to talk about part two in a few minutes here right. on the podcast. And I like, I, I don't think that we we can really. Nope. Like we're, we're capturing some key points, um, but there's so much to this to like try to complicate these narratives and make it complex and recognizing our full humanities while also repairing harm and, and creating a more just world for, yes. for all of us. And 
So that, that yeah, that's all of. <laughs> there's so much in it. Yeah, there's so much. Absolutely. Um. All right. So part three is called "The State Can't Give Us Transformative Justice," uh, and Maryam Kaba discusses three prominent cases in the United States. Uh, the first is Darren Wilson, the police officer who killed Michael Brown. The second is Larry Nasser, the Michigan State and U.S. gymnastics team doctor who abused, sexually abused hundreds of gymnasts for decades. And then Brianna Taylor, who was killed by police in Louisville while asleep in her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are all very different cases, yes. right? Um, but they're all connected to the criminal punishment system in different ways um, that touch on how um how it's it's working how it's supposed to be i guess um or how it right yes. like it's all hmm. it's again i think complicating the narrative around the simplicity of things right like darren wilson is an easily despisable figure yes larry nasser is an easily described despite despisable despicable yes all of the things figure uh, and then Brianna Taylor could again be used as a an example of like a so-called perfect victim. Yes. Um, and she doesn't do any of that, right? Um, and so she talks about how all three of these people provide examples for how the system doesn't provide us with actual transformative justice and cannot. Absolutely. Right? Um, so yeah, what were your thoughts on this? Section? Yeah, that that's it, right? Yeah. Like, well, you know. Those three cases are just huge, right? So there's just right. so much to process uh, out of part three. Um, but I definitely wanted to talk about, you know, the concept of transformative justice itself because I yes. think the concept is huge, and and really, if we can get folks on board with it and if folks can understand it, I think it can radically cha- radically change the way we think about our criminal punishment system. Um, so I think it was in that chapter about the Larry Nassar case uh, where transformative justice was defined. So I definitely wanted to share that here. Mm-hmm. Um, they say transformative justice is a community process developed by anti-violence activists of color in particular who wanted to create responses to violence that do what criminal punishment systems fail to do, build support and more safety for the person harmed figure out how the broader context was set up for this harm to happen and how the context can be changed so that this harm is less likely to happen again. And then a little later on, they say it is not grounded in punitive justice and it actually requires us to challenge our punitive impulses while prioritizing healing, repair and accountability. Yeah. So that's a little bit sort of about the, what transformative justice is Mm -hmm. and then sort of later on they talk a little bit more specifically about the steps involved in the process so i want to share that too they say a truly transformative justice would mean that a single survivor coming forward to tell their tale of harm years ago would actually have been believed the first time right we would immediately focus on addressing the harms perpetrated centering the on the concerns and experiences of the person who was harmed Next, we would also focus on the person responsible for the harm, but without disregarding their humanity. This means we have to acknowledge the reality that often it is hurt people who hurt other people. 
Understanding that harm originates from situations dominated by stress, scarcity, and oppression. One way to prevent violence is to make sure that people have support to get the things they need. We must also create a culture that enables people to actually take accountability for violence and harm. Mm -hmm. The criminal punishment system promises accountability for violence, but we know that in actuality it is a form of targeted violence against poor people, people with disabilities, and people of color and doesn't reduce violence in our society. Right. Right. And yeah. like, what a concept, right? Like the idea, there's so much there, but you know, some of the ideas around, you know, us actually actively working to address harm, you know, not diminishing anyone's humanity, you know, and that even being sort of the, the harmer, um, and, yeah. and, and working to improve the systems and conditions that put folks in situations where they commit harm, um, is again, this, imaginative idea yeah right and yeah, i yeah. think it's just where we need to go yeah well and one of the pieces that i think is here is it it provides space for somebody who harmed someone else to take accountability for it and yes. to say and to, to recognize the harm that they did and uh what that harm did to somebody else yes right um and then try to make amends for that mm -hmm. uh if you know possible right um, and then gr sort of learn or grow from that. And I think that that's, that's a challenging concept when we think about how inscribed in us personally the punish criminal punishment system is where we somebody harms someone else and then we lock them away and throw away the key, right? Yes. And so in this example of Larry Nasser, the judge said, mm. I'm signing your death certificate yep. because of the the sentence that she had given him for however many years and, and whatever. Um, and so it's like, well, you know, he is, again, a despicable figure. He's yes. easily despisable because of all of the harm that he caused for people forever. For years, yeah. Um, and what would it have looked like if somebody, the first person who this happened to, came forward and said, hey there's something not right going on and they they took that seriously mm -hmm. and how many of those people right so like a truly justice just process would have been the first person being believed yeah or believing that they would have been believed yes which is also it. right yep. um and then all of these dozens and dozens up to hundreds of other women athletes wouldn't have been abused and assaulted by this one absolutely man. yeah and that's a piece of that that's missing too in that whole case around sort of what right. uh, came to be for uh usa gymnastics and what came mm -hmm. to be for michigan right like that's a piece that's often neglected in that right right it's because you know he wasn't he was the one creating harm interpersonally but what was this you know the, the systems around him allowing yeah. him to do too right absolutely um so um yeah, right. So that's what transformative justice is, is like looking at the content or the con uh, text yes. of what created the system, the, the the ability for that person to cause the harm to and trying to find ways to, to resolve that as well. Which again speaks back to the original point that you made at the start of this about how this is complicated, right? It is. This is complex, yeah. right? There is no elevator speech for this because it is so complex. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about part four. Okay. So it's called... Making Demands, Reforms for and Against Abolition. Uh, and so this is closely connected to a few of the conversations we've had on the podcast yeah. already um, recently about police reforms and whether they're reformist reforms or reforms toward abolition. 
Um, and so it felt closely connected to that critical resistance PDF or uh, handout that we looked at. Yes. Um, and the first essay here is this list of suggested reforms to oppose as they reify the power of the prison industrial complex and the, the criminal punishment system. Um, and then some reforms that reduce the power of those systems. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this again is sort of directly tied to that uh, critical resistance ham- handout of reformist reforms versus abolitionist reforms. So, um, yeah, what what did you think about this part? Yeah, I, there's a I, lot here too. There's a lot here too, and I also yeah, I thought about our friends at Critical Resistance and that mm-hmm. handout when I was when I was reading this too. Yeah, and definitely some of the conversations that we've had before. You know, I I was really compelled by there was a chapter called A People's History of Prisons in the United States mm-hmm. um, where they were talking about um, how almost every uprising in this country's history has police brutality and violence at its root um, yeah. because it's true. Right. And it's also, it's also such a ridiculous, shameful thought for, for us as a nation, right. That every uprising we've experienced in this country over hundreds of years um, at the core of it and why it is happening uh, is because of some kind of uh, maybe individual case, but it's, it's more than that as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um police brutality and police violence you know people in this country reach that point where they're just so angry right and and they have to do something to sort of visibly uh demonstrate um that anger right and lay out their demands um and and push that we as a society you know treat black people justly right and Mm -hmm. not as second-class citizens right that we aren't out here harming uh that black people aren't out here getting harmed by police and our systems just doing everyday things you know and just living their everyday lives right um but our criminal punishment system and and all of its tentacles all of its parts you know have done that since the dawn of time right yep you know and one of the other things that is a piece of part four is that it also brings in conversations about the school to prison pipeline um, and the militarization of the U.S. police um, as other element other elements of uh, this conversation and examples of ways in which our systems are flawed as well. And so, yeah, there. I mean, uh, there's so much to talk about uh, right. in in thinking about what was presented to us in in part four. Um, but I think I appreciated so much of it because, you know, as I've said before, um, today and in previous episodes, I think it makes a clear case for abolition as the only way forward. And I and then it's sort of that it is, you know, part four, as you mentioned, right? One, two, three, and four sort of set the stage, right? For right. what I think and hope. Uh five, six, and seven. I shouldn't say hope. I know it's going to. Uh <laughs> what five, six, and seven are gonna do for us. Yeah. And I so there's this quote from the later part. Uh, a later later part of part four that says uh, an abolition politic interrogates the root causes of violence that are masked by the carceral state. So I feel like that ties back so well to yes. that opening chapter. Um, so you're thinking about becoming an abolitionist and right. I think lays the foundation for right some of these these practices that we we believe are coming in the these next few parts that we're going to read. Absolutely. Um, and they're also, you know, I will say they're sprinkled throughout um, the first four parts in different yes. ways, right? Like there's this example of um, uh, some neighborhood mothers getting together and selling hot dogs on the on a corner. Yep. Um, and that being sort of their approach to 
sort of addressing community violence in yes. a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. So the, there are certainly uh, specific examples of, of real life abolitionist practices happening throughout um, and community, right? Like community development almost yes. happening throughout that those first four parts. Um, but I think that that quote really lays the foundation for what, what I think is going to come next. All right. So a- application, um, th- you know, there's so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we are only halfway through the book, really. Um, but I want to talk about what Miriam Kaba says early on in the book where she says, first, when we set about trying to transform society, we must remember that we ourselves will also need to transform. Our imagination of what a different world can be is limited. We're deeply entangled in the very systems we are organizing to change. And I love that so much because we have to recognize all of the ways that the violence and oppression of these systems are embedded in us, right? Like, you know, we're fish swimming in this water and we fish don't know that they're in water, right? Like that's just what they exist in, right? Um, And so we even learned and internalized all the stuff through the years through silent conditioning that prisons are good, which means we've learned that people are disposable in certain ways. We've been cut off from one another and individualized so that we don't think we owe each other anything. Um, and, you know, I think those are just two examples of things to uproot in ourselves and pursue new ways of doing things and organizing ourselves in our communities. Um, and so, yeah, I think spending some time, um, and I'll get to this in homework, I guess, in a second. But okay. I think this, this, you know, kind of, this feels directly applicable. It's like, how is, how are these systems being reinforced by own, my own individual behavior and my own kind of internalized thoughts uh, as well, and 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 my impulses and, and uh, instincts, right? That aren't really instincts because they were baked into us and and taught to us in certain ways yeah from yeah. from really birth right yeah yeah that's uh yeah that's really great application work uh yeah i'm with you there and i appreciate miriam Kaba's amazing thinking around how we can and how we must transform our society in these ways so yeah i'll i'll echo that application work mm-hmm. um for me one piece of application is the fact that there's just so much more thinking I want to do around everything we've read in the first four parts of this book. Right. Um, so I definitely want to take time to do that. Uh, but another piece of application is connected to a push that was made in um, the chapter in part three on Michael Brown's killer uh, and, and sort of a discussion around police accountability. And that push that while the recognition of police accountability is important and has been good to a point, Really, it's abolition. Uh, that's what we need, right? Yeah. And uh, is, uh, that abolition is truly the place we need to be and, and we need to be moving forward and, and moving towards, I should say. And I think the author of that piece points out some really good uh, short, medium, and long-term actions that we can take at the individual, community, institutional, and societal levels. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to make sure that I brought attention to that um, that chapter and this text as, as sort of good reading and good thinking for all of us to consider. So if you're short on time, this is a good one to check out. You know, some of the things that were highlighted uh, was, you know, the author mentioned that he never calls the police, right? Um, you know, they they pay attention to city budgets. You know, they reach out to elected officials to push for and demand a degree a decrease in, in 
the police budget. Um, you know, they support civilian accountability boards and there's so, so much more. Um, and so again, I really just wanted to highlight some of that as some maybe tangible application work there for all of us. And mm -hmm. probably everything I just said, is really a mix of both application and homework, but I yeah. wanted to make sure I highlighted that. Yeah. And so jumping back to civilian accountability boards, I remember there being a pretty lengthy sort of discussion about the complexity of those things too, because yes. depending on how they're set up, they could sort of reify and reinforce, yep. you know, the police's legitimacy depending on how they're established Absolutely. Um, versus actually giving community control. Yep. Um, Very good and point. so that that's that's something else that is a big discussion here. And it's something that we've talked about a little bit here before, too, um, is that, uh, you know, how those systems are put into place might just be reformist reforms rather yes. than steps toward abolition. And yeah. so um, Very good point. Yeah. But so homework. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute. I think homework ties into what I said in application. What are the ways that we are individually reinforcing the idea of disposability in our lives, the disposability of people, um, because we see them as, as quote unquote bad? Um, yeah. And how do we pass along the violence that we've witnessed to other people, right? Back to that idea of hurt people, hurt people. That right. was a quote you, you pulled in here. Yeah. Um, what are some forms of accountability that we value? Like what, what do we actually value of accountability? Um, and is it based in this idea around punishment from an authority figure? Mm -hmm. And is that the only way that we see accountability happening? Um, I think, so I think these are just, you know, two, three, however many questions I just said there. Um, <laughs> Those are just two, I think, small but maybe important pieces of uh, homework for self-reflection. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I said, that's not all of it. Obviously, yeah. there's so much no. more. But I think those are two interesting places to start. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think all of those questions, and I'm sure countless more, again, get us back to what Miriam talks about around imagination. Yep. Right? Um, and they allow space for us to get to a place where we can be imaginative in this, which is so important in abolition work. And so mm -hmm. I appreciate that. You know, I love some good self-assessment work. So thank you for yeah. posing those questions and, and offering that as homework. So I'm going to steal those. You know, I also am just going to say and put it out there that I think our main homework <laughs> that we both need to do is we need to finish this book, right? Yeah. 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 We're going to keep talking next week. <laughs> yes. um, I think the other thing that I think we'll, we'll talk about probably more next week too um, but I want to mention here as well as probably a source of some more self-reflective questions yeah. um, is there is a discussion guide to this book um, that is hosted on the Haymarket Books website. Um, so if you Google, we do this till we free us discussion guide, you'll be able to find it. Um, and But we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, but I just want to shout that out in case you're you happen to be reading along with us since we are splitting this into two different episodes. Yes. Um, so yeah, check those out. Very good. Yeah. So as we said at the beginning of this episode, uh, we're going to bring, we do this till we free us back for next week and discuss the last three parts of the book. Uh, so I, I guess I'm just bringing this back to the table again. Yeah. You're not, you're not kicking it over to me. We're, we're, <laughs> we're finishing this book and yep. we're going to talk more about this. Uh, and I'm so excited to, to finish the book and to, to talk more about this with you next week. Absolutely. Yep, definitely.
All right. Well, we want to thank you for joining us and listening to Interdependent Study. Uh, you know what I'm going to ask you to do here, but in case you forgot, please follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with your family, friends, enemies, whoever. Remember, we're, none of us are disposable. Uh, and of course, give us a follow on social media. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to Interdependent Study. And remember, it's not about us, but it is about us. We'll talk to you next week. 